Hey everyone, welcome to Go Bold. Founding and hosting this podcast has been a true blessing in many respects. More than anything, I am grateful for the people I've had the pleasure to interview and for the friendships that have developed from it. My guest today is someone who I am honored to feature. He is someone that has gone through a life-changing event, an event which has actually given him a beautiful outlook on life. My guest is retired U.S. Navy Commander Kevin Klon, a F-18 Super Hornet fighter pilot whose call sign is Shaka. Commander Klon is a graduate of the U.S. Naval Academy, and he is also a graduate of the Navy's prestigious Top Gun Fighter Weapons School. Shaka then served as a Navy Weapons School instructor pilot and as the commanding officer of VFA-31, a Super Hornet squadron. On 11 October 2007, as part of his duties as an instructor pilot at Strike Fighter Weapons School Atlantic, Shaka was flying a Legacy F-18 Hornet, where he was acting as Red Air, which were presenting training scenarios for Blue Force fighters, which were based at Naval Air Station Oceana. As fate would have it, Shaka had to eject from his F-18 that day while bullseye low. What does that mean, and how did he survive? Well, I hope you'll listen to Shaka's first-hand account here, and I hope you will find some inspiration from his story. I know I certainly have. I also want to say that the tagline for this podcast is Talking to Real Life Heroes. I believe that my guests are just that, and I definitely think the people that came to Shaka's rescue are heroes too. It's because of their professionalism that a life was saved that day. So we here at Go Bold want to thank them for their service. I hope you enjoy this episode. It's one you definitely don't want to miss. Let's roll the music. Hey everybody, welcome to Go Bold. My name is Jody Tariwala and I'm your host. And today I've been looking forward to this chat because I had the privilege to connect with a retired United States Navy fighter pilot who flew the FA-18 Super Hornet, otherwise known as the Rhino. And my guest has a very, well, let's put it this way. Many people fly military jets, but it's much more rare to eject out of one and survive. And I'm thankful that my guest is here today to speak about his experiences and that event. It's a super interesting story. I, I love aviation and I love tactical aviation in particular. So I'm really looking forward to this chat. So with that said, I am happy to welcome retired United States Navy Commander Kevin Klon, call sign Shaka. Uh, Shaka, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, Jody. Hey, thank you so much. It's been great to get to know you over the last couple of months as we've had a couple of chimes to chat and, and I've listened to the podcast and, and the stories that you're telling. Thank you for what you're doing. And I'm super happy to be here. Uh, thank you very much. You honor me. Um, so I ask everybody this, you know, what was your motivation to serve and why'd you pick the branch that you did? Yeah, sure. Well, um, 
You know, I, I was I was blessed to grow up in a home that was it was just a great place to grow up. I, I grew up in the suburbs of Pittsburgh. I had a great family who really supported me. You know, valued my education, valued uh, sports, uh, leadership activities, things like that. And um, neither of my parents served in the military, but I did have grand you know grandparents and uncles who had served. So there definitely was always a thought of. Uh, what it meant to serve. But, you know, Pittsburgh's not a particular, like there's not any military bases or anything there. So I really wasn't exposed to the military a whole lot when I was young. Um, early in my time in high school, I think as a part of like a basketball team, one of the other dads on the team uh, was like a blue and gold officer for the Navy, uh, which basically he was a retired Navy pilot who was flying for the airlines. But he kind of reached out to me on a trip and and just asked me, hey, Kevin, have you ever thought about, you know, joining you know, going to a service academy, joining the military. And honestly, at the time, I, I knew very little about it. Like, I, I knew nothing about what it meant to, to be in the military, what it meant to serve in the service academy. So, but it kind of, you know, it, it, it resonated with me, you know, started doing a little bit of research and I knew a couple people that had gone to the academies and um, eventually, you know, a year or two down the road, I'm, I'm taking some some visits to the, the service academies and I visited all three, uh, or I, you know, I visited Army, Navy and, and uh, the Air Force. Um, the Navy really stuck out to me for a lot of reasons. One, uh, I loved Annapolis. Like it was just, it seemed like it seemed, I mean, the yard was amazing. The Naval Academy, um, everything about the culture, that the, the attitude of, it just seemed like it was a ton of high performing people who were trying to, to, you know, teamwork was a huge element of what was going on. There was a huge commitment to doing the right thing, uh, a commitment to, you know, education and bettering yourself. It just so much the structure. There were just a lot of things that really resonated with me. And honestly, as I started to think about which of the service academies I wanted to apply to, um, what actually, <laughs> I had no idea what I wanted to do. Um, and the Navy, it kind of seemed like I could do just about anything, i.e. If I, if I decided I wanted to go uh, be a soldier, you know, I, I could go to the Marine Corps out of the Naval Academy or I could go be a, be a SEAL. Or if I decided I wanted to fly, you know, that you could, you could do that at the Navy and Obviously, there are ships and, and submarines, and and actually, at the time, I was really into physics, and I really was interested in and uh, and a lot going on there. And I I thought that hey, that's that's probably the community I could go be a nuclear engineer, go be on a sub. Um, my first day at the Naval Academy, a couple F-14s flew over, and that that started to kind of change my mind. Like hey, there might be something else in the future for for a, a career for me. But those are the kinds of things that I think that initially inspired me to go there. I, I love and, it. And join, yeah. Yeah. You know, it is so cool because you are the first person that has shared that kind of thought process about the Navy. Because, yeah, when you come to think of it, there are so many different career paths that you can go down from yeah. that one service. Yeah. And a lot of, to me, you know, as a high school kid, it just seemed like a lot of like exciting career paths, like very operationally focused that were very different in domains and, and the kinds of things you might be doing to me. And, and, you know, to be fair, like you could probably say the same about the army, but it's not as much of it in its culture. Um, maybe you could say the same about the air force as well too, but the Navy, it just seemed like there were some, there were some big swings you could take uh, in very different directions. And I really didn't know what direction my career was going to take me. I, I will say, um, you know, I think the more time I spent at the Naval Academy, what drew me to aviation as, as you know, my preferred service uh, selection that I wanted to do was um, obviously it's a cool job. Like you can't, you can't it's, it's a fun job, but it, more than that, it was the types of people that were in aviation and the community of people. And uh, every aviator I talked to loved their job. And 
I won't disparage any of the other services across the, uh, the Navy, but they're definitely that wasn't the sense of, of all of the services, but every aviator you spoke to just like was so happy that they had chosen to fly regardless of what they flew in aviation. And then, so, you know, it's high quality people who have a lot of job satisfaction. Um, that was kind of what I, I wanted to do cool things and work with amazing people. And that, that was what it was. I think that really drove me to go in aviation out of the Academy. You know, for me, it would have been just seeing the two F-14s fly by. I'd be like, yeah. that's it. <laughs> that's it. Yeah. Yeah. I love, no, I, I love the F-14, you know, like, and no disrespect to the Super Hornet, but for the longest time, I was like, oh man, it killed the Tomcat. <laughs> no, it, it, totally. So, I mean, I was, I got my wings in 2002 and that's right around the end of when they were actually putting new Tomcat pilots into the pipeline. And uh, I can say this now that I'm retired, but uh, my first choice was to go fly F-14s. I definitely wanted it. It was awesome. You know, it would have been awesome to fly. Uh, the squadron I was in as a JO had just transitioned from F-14. So, I, you know, for my for the first three years of my career, all I heard from everyone was how awesome the F-14 was and how terrible the Super Hornet was. But there was, you know, there was a, a ton of that uh, for a while. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm sure, I, I'm sure there was. And, yeah. you know, this is a little bit off topic, but I think about the F-14 sunset in 2006 and with all due respect to all the Tomcat Bubba's that are out there, um, I saw all the footage of it and it was kind of lackluster for a sunset. And mm. I'm like, what the heck, you know, like me, I don't know if you were there because <laughs> it was at Oceana and I know you served at Oceana, but I was like, it just seemed like it, it, it kind of went out with a, you know, with a whimper as opposed to a roar. <laughs> Yeah, you know, maybe. So I, I, I didn't see it. I probably was at Ocean. I mean, I, I remember when it happened, but, you know, it was kind of a slow shutdown, you know, of many, you know, over the course of many years, most of those squadrons had transitioned to Super Hornets. And by the time it finally was like last, you know, last flight um, and the sunset, there weren't that many, you know, not nearly as many super gung-ho Tomcat folks around as there were a couple of years prior to that. Right. And, and to be fair, you know, back to the comment, like, you know, the late model Tomcat, the D, like, was a pretty spectacular plane. And the early model Super Hornets were still kind of in their infancy. So there were some things, you know, that, that late Tomcats could do that the Super Hornet pilot, you know, they, they moved over to the Super Hornet, like, hey, why don't I have a targeting pod like a Lantern? It was actually right. a pretty good targeting pod. Yeah. Um, and there's certain things you can't do, you know, but as the super Hornet has evolved significantly over those years, like, you know, can't even compare the two. Now the super Hornet's obviously a far, it's very different, far more capable platform than what the Tomcat was back then. Yeah, absolutely. Like, I mean, you know, short of carrying the Phoenix missile, uh, right. like, I mean, you know, yeah, I think I agree with you. Like just the, the, the weapons load out, uh, that the, that the super Hornet can carry. I think it can carry almost everything in the Navy inventory. Pretty much. It, it, it's pretty robust. My last deployment, um, yeah, 2017, we were carrying all sorts of different things, really just exploring the space of what you could actually carry. The first time and really the only time in my career when I saw that where, you know, we were doing combat operations in support of a lot of different things. And, and we, uh, yeah, we, we had some some great opportunities for different loadouts, which was which was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, right on. No, it's a very capable yeah. aircraft. And well, it, and that's it's a perfect segue to lead into, you know, your career uh, in yeah, the sure. Super Hornet community. So um, tell me that little bit about, you know, just as you graduate the academy and wanting to choose the naval aviator path. Yeah, so, 
you know, it was, it was kind of a slow evolution in my four years at the Academy. But like I said, for me, it was, it seemed to be about, you know, culture more so than anything. And, and just going to work in a place where it seemed like, again, you had high performing people who really genuinely enjoyed what they were doing. And, and every, every little, you know, place that I got to dip my toe a little bit and, and see what naval aviation had to offer just made me more excited to become a part of that. And it's not to say, again, not to disparage any other communities because there's elements and there's there's certain things that resonate across the Navy and across the services. But, you know, by the time service selection came around, um, yeah, I, I chose uh, aviation, got aviation. And then, um, you know, it's, it's then a couple years of figuring out what you're going to fly, you know, go to flight school, start off in Pensacola, spend a couple months there. Um, Went to Corpus Christi for uh, only a few months as well, maybe six months or so for what we call primary training. And at the time, that's been basically at the end of that, it was T-34s, now it's T-6s. But at the end of that primary training, you basically, based on your performance up to that point, you get to select what you're going to do next. And, and um, you know, because of the challenges with landing fixed wing aircraft on carriers, there's, you know, you have to have certain grades in order to be selected to fly any, any fixed wing, any jets off of off of carriers or other fixed wing uh, E2 as well. Um, and I wasn't sure, like I had okay grades. I, I'd never flown anything. Like again, like there's some people I know that you've talked to and others elsewhere that, you know, they wanted to fly their whole career. And, and now I think there's actually a lot more like you'll go fly Cessnas for a period of time. I forget what it's called, but they get you to a, a certain level of proficiency in the air before you actually start flight training. Whereas uh, when I went through that wasn't the case at all. So it was, yeah, I was, very much learning something brand new to me. Uh, and it's, it's hard. I mean, it's stressful. It's hard. It's fun. But, um, you know, when, when all of that was said and done and I was like, you know, six months into my training, I'm like, ah, I really would love to fly jets. Uh, but I don't know if that's going to happen. Uh, but my grades were just good enough. And thankfully that, you know, luck of the draw, um, that, that week I, I selected jets and, and, uh, and then I went to Kingsville and I spent like another year there flying. So we flew the T-45, uh, you get trained up in that for about a year. You go to the carrier at the very end of that. You just do day landings on the carrier, but you prove that you can you can kind of make it. And, and the the one thing that's like, you either got to figure out how to do this or you got to go find something else to do because that is critical to be a naval aviator, uh, to be a tailhook, you know, aviator to land on a carrier. So, Well, you know, and now just, just to that point, uh, yeah. the Navy has been looking at, uh, and I don't know exactly where it stands right now, uh, I, I, sh I should look into it because I am curious, but um, they've been thinking about basically doing away with that carrier phase of T-45 training. In flight training. So this, you have keyed on in on a very hot topic that I would not have felt comfortable talking about before I retired. And, and I'll probably make you know half my friends happy and the other half mad by saying what I'll say. I personally, I, I'm okay with that. I'm a believer in that where technology is now compared to where it was 20 years ago with essentially your the, the aided systems that you have available in order to help you land on the carrier. Magic carpet. Um, ma magic carpet being, the, yeah, exactly. So for those unfamiliar, precision landing mode is the uh, uh, the, the the term that you'll hear people use. That the, the full acronym is, it's one of those like backronyms, like someone creates magic carpet stands for something. I forget what it is. It's ridiculous. But the idea that basically you're still flying the aircraft, like it's not an auto, it's not a um, coupled thing where you actually your hands off and you give control. But the best way to, to describe it to anyone who's ever flown is it's a decoupling of your pitch, roll, and yaw. So like the three ways that you move an aircraft um, from each other. So for instance, when you want to, uh, you know, once you, once you 
essentially enter this mode of, of your flight controls and the gears down and you say, Hey, I want to, I want to de descend. Like I'm too high. I'm coming into the carrier. I'm too high. You know, the old way of doing it is you're too high, but you have to maintain your attitude. Like landing in the carrier is tough. You got to keep your attitude exactly the same. So you got to take a little bit of power off. Mm -hmm. um, then you got to wait for the jet to kind of come down and you got to catch it. And we, we talk about these like continuous three-part corrections all the way down where now with magic carpet, you can actually just push forward on the stick but the aircraft attitude maintains the same. It's just by you pushing forward on the stick, you're just saying to the jet, I want to move down. I'm too high. So it's a decoupled control input that essentially uses, you know, lifties or, you know, dynamic lift control, flight control surfaces to like move you down. So the, the effect, and, and the same thing, if you, if you are lined up right and you need to go left and you say left wing down old way, you know, you, you roll the aircraft left and you're going to lose some lifties mm -hmm. and the jet's going to start falling out of the sky. Um, so you have to do all these corrections to account for that. Now it's like when you say, I want to go left, you go left, but it stays perfectly on glide slope and perfectly uh, at the right attitude. So really it just, it, it makes the, you know, you as the pilot are still flying the aircraft, but it makes it much easier to deal with all the challenges and the, the, dy the dynamic nature. So honestly, for that reason alone, I personally am okay with them because the, the other opportunity or the other you know, we would need to clean sheet a new trainer aircraft, i.e. build a brand new trainer aircraft to land on the carrier. Um, there's just not many good solutions like that would take a ton of time, a ton of money. Um, we're having a hard time doing that with like our fighter aircraft as it is. So um, I, I'm a fan, you know, if we can shorten that training pipeline and, and not have to do that part there and then get it later. But there are many, you'll probably talk to some of them who will violently disagree with me and we can still be friends, but, <laughs> um, <laughs> well, yeah, be, because really at the end of the day, that, that could be some of the early stuff that you do at the rag. Yeah. hundred percent. Yeah. And, and you do, to be fair, like you still, the way it is now, like you do it in the training command and people are unsuccessful and people will kind of wash out of that crucible. And you might get a couple swings at that bat, but if, if you can't do that, like just don't really have a business being a naval aviator. So it's used as kind of, and you know, it's a much less expensive, much easier to handle smaller jet than being in a F-18. Sure. But again, I, I, I think that there's ways to mitigate it without having to do a, a brand new clean sheet design of a trainer aircraft, which would be it just would be a huge expense. And I just don't know where, where we get the money to do that. And it would take a, a long time. So and I don't think we need to do it anymore. Yeah. Well, and, and then yeah. the other aspect to it is, you know, I remember because, you know, I, I got interested in the Tomcat in the 80s. So like, I mean, I'm, I'm dating myself, but, uh, you know, early 80s too. And uh, uh, so well, well before Top Gun, but um, uh, the movie, um, but, uh, but at that time, if memory serves, and I'm pretty sure I'm right, it used to be one of the more older carriers would be tasked with that, with that training role. And so if you can, take that that burden away to have a carrier designated whether it's an older or a current you know they're all nuclear now but um you know if you can free up a carrier from that training role you know it can be now used operationally 100 percent, yeah and and i think that you know they used to do it more where they would have something like that where it's like there's a dedicated carrier for those things that obviously is a huge expense and it's a time you know like there's 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 issues with that the model that they've used more recently is they just grab carriers like kind of as available. But again, all of that additional like carrier qualification training, it's a big demand on resources. So 
I personally am a fan of if we can be more efficient with our training, uh, i.e., you know, it's again, these kinds of technologies are just they make it better and different and easier. So being smart with training resources, I think is important as we go forward. So, yeah. Yeah. I completely agree with you. And I think, you know, change is hard, right? People get kind of ingrained in the way of doing things and they're like, this is the way I did it. This is the way I think you should do it. But as technology marches forward, we should be careful about adopting it. But, you know, if it can help and speed things up, like you say, while continuing to make things safe, why not? Sure. Yeah, yeah, sure. And the, yeah. The, and there's, like I said, there's plenty of like devil's advocate reasons that I'm not bringing up as far as why it still would make sense. But I think, I think we have solutions for some of them. So yeah, right. on. I agree. Yeah. So tell me yeah. about flying the super Hornet. Yeah. Um, so it's great. Yeah. So I, you know, I, I finished flight school in Kingsville, um, got my wings, which was great. And then went to Lamore, California, started flying the super Hornet and, um, it's awesome. I mean, it's, it's a great plane. It's, uh, you know, for those of you who don't know the differences, it's about 30% bigger than the regular Hornet, um, or the classic Hornet or the legacy Hornet, um, the A- the F-18A through D. Um, and the early versions of the Super Hornet were largely the same like system. So the radar, it was, it was the APG-73 at the time. So they basically had the same radar. They had the same targeting pods pretty similar combat systems all the way around. So really it was just mostly a, a slightly bigger jet. Um, the flight controls are really advanced. It's a very maneuverable aircraft, like from a slow speed flying perspective, it performs really well because it's got to get slow to land on the carrier. So mm-hmm. therefore like the, 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 the flight control surfaces on that aircraft are huge compared to a lot of uh, other, you know, similarly sized fighter aircraft. You know, we're probably somewhere between the size of a, you know, F, F-16, much smaller, F-15, obviously bigger. So somewhere halfway in between there. Um, so, it, you know, it's not not nearly as fast. You know, we get made fun of a lot by those guys, uh, as we should, because it's we're, we're a little bit of a pig. Uh, we're, we are the rhino. The, the rhino is the nickname there. So like kind of uh, big and tough, very maneuverable. You don't want to get in close. Uh, if you get in a close fight with a Super Hornet, it's pretty good. Uh, and then over the years, I mean, just has really done a good job of modernization. So we went from the kind of legacy APG-73, you know, mechanically scanned radar to get the ASA, which I, I spent most of my career flying with that. It's spectacular um, just from a technology standpoint and um, has done a really good job of modernizing via software and hardware over the years to where, you know, at my last deployment, I felt very comfortable. We were uh, over the, the skies of Syria in 2017 as things were kind of uh, closing in around ISIS, there was a lot of interactions with the Russians flying over Syria and as we see elsewhere in the world. And, um, you know, it was really interesting. I don't want to talk uh, too much about that here, but, um, you know, I felt very comfortable flying around in a Super Hornet in those uh, those regimes. Certainly areas that uh, we would have been concerned about had things gone sideways, um, but I also felt like there's no other aircraft in, in the U.S. inventory barring F-22. And obviously this is six years ago. F-35 was still very much in its nascent stage, but you know, both of those fifth gen platforms obviously offer a ton more capability than what you're going to bring in a super Hornet. But for, for my 20 year career, couldn't be happier to have flown anything else. It was awesome. Yeah, no, it's, it's an amazing aircraft and uh, um, yeah, very capable. And for those again, that might not know um, the super Hornet had two variants, the E and the F. So the E is a single seat and the F being a two seat. Um, Did you fly both? Like, I mean, if you can fly one, you can fly both, but 
operationally in the squadrons that you were in? Were they E or F squadrons? Yeah, sure. So I actually, I, I split my career about 50-50, which is not um, for a pilot. Um, that's, I would say, fairly common. You know, you don't necessarily get pigeonholed into one or the other. My, it so worked out that my first tour was with an F squadron, VFA 102 over in Japan. I was stationed there for a couple of years. And then my second tour was with uh, VFA 211, the checkmates at Oceana, also a two-seat uh, F squadron. Both those squadrons had transitioned from Tomcats. Uh, and then my department head tour, VFA 136, was with a single-seat squadron. And then my CO tour was with a single-seat squadron. So I'll just say broadly, I think there's pros and cons uh, to both. I think there's there's times when it was really nice having a second set of eyeballs in the cockpit and having a second, you know, someone to bounce things off, doing task shedding, um, you know, when it comes to complicated missions. There definitely were, were times when it was really nice having that. I do think as I got more senior, I mean, the Super Hornet, much like the Hornet, was kind of designed to be a single-seat aircraft. So unlike the Tomcat, where you had a very clear break in you know, there, there were certain things you couldn't do from the front. You know, you absolutely needed to have two people. Whereas the Super Hornet, that's not the case. It was designed from the get-go as a single-seat aircraft. And by the time I was in my DH and CO tour, I think I enjoyed flying by myself. And kind of my, my crew members were my wingmen. Um, and you operate a lot more like what, you know, an A-10 might or an F-16 or an F-15C model. Uh, just as far as how you think about crew coordination and doing those things, you're doing it amongst a flight rather than just in your own aircraft. So there's pros and cons. I'm I'm super happy and lucky that I got I had the chance to, to fly both. Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. It, it, I always kind of wondered about that because it, it, some some of it is personality, right? Some people just are enjoy that cockpit environment yeah. where you're the one, you're the only one up there. Yes, you have your wingman and what have you, but everything's on you. Whereas, yep. you know, the two-seat tandem cockpit kind of configuration, you know, you can offload as a pilot, you can offload some of the things that you might otherwise do to the Wizzo. Yeah, I'm a firm believer that on a tough day when there's a lot going on, if you've got a two-seat crew that is just, they're locked in, they're operating together well, they're going to outperform a single-seat pilot. I think that oftentimes the, the the you know, there's there's good parochial you know, banter back and forth to the communities. And I think that the reason why people that like to fly single-seat is because there are certain people that really, really prefer that. It's because just what you said, like that's all on you now. And if you can manage it that well, you can be really effective. The jet is really well designed to operate with one person doing everything. But I 100% agree that there are times when you're really locked in with another crew member, you're going to outperform the single seat uh, person any day. And there's, there were a handful of uh, whizzos that I flew without my career that, you know, I'd go into combat with them today, go do any mission in a heartbeat uh, with them. So. Yeah. Well, you know, you served in combat, you know, you've done many combat missions. And I suspect um, that when you're in a task saturated environment, and you've got multiple radios that you're listening to, factor out air traffic control, but you know, JTAC stuff and what have you. Sure. Um, yeah, having maybe the extra person there is is helpful. Yeah, I would just, I would say it depends, like sometimes, you know, it, it definitely is at times, um, especially when there's a lot of like disparate things going on, i.e. someone's yapping at me on another radio that about something completely different, but it's important, but I'm also trying to talk to a JTAC on this radio, like that's the kind of things you you simply can't do. Um, I think that the, the what will always be the challenge of any multi-crew 
aircraft is that you're always going to have different perceptions of what's happening. The more people you add, the more coordination that there needs to be. So you're right. going to have different perceptions of what's actually happening versus what's happening. And um, a well-working crew is going to be as tightly integrated as possible. So they both have the same perception of the world around them and the battle space around them. And they literally are just playing off, you know, it's like a doubles game of tennis or something like that, where they're just, they're able to do that well. Um, when that's not working well, it can be pretty frustrating. Um, so that, that's, that's why, <laughs> right. that's why I say it depends. Right. Um, but, but when it's working well, it's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know, before we leave the discussion about kind of, you know, the configuration of the, of the super Hornet and, sure. and uh, kind of the different blocks. So there was a block one super Hornet block two, which you flew. I, I guess yeah. you pr perhaps flew both, but block two is yep. the prevalent one. Uh, now yep. they've got the block three that they're putting out. Um, I got to ask you, cause you're, you know, you're a Rhino pilot. Um, what are your thoughts about what you know of the block three configured uh, super Hornet? Yeah. So, I mean, there's block three has been in the works for a long time and, you know, we're excited now the new super Hornets are being built by the pros out in St. Louis uh, coming off the Boeing line out there, their block three configuration. And there's a handful of upgrades far more than, than, than what I either know or, or, um, could say here, you know, it's not as different of a thing like F-15E versus F-15EX, tons of differences, like very, very different platforms, right? That's kind of like a new thing. Your block right. increments for the Super Hornet, are think of them more like just kind of packages of upgrades that have been bundled together uh, where stuff is going to work together. So, you know, I'm, I'm thinking through, you know, some of the, the big things that are going to be nice with Block 3 Super Hornet, there's a new large area display. So they've gotten rid of kind of the, the old um, you know, very like CRT uh, type tube displays um, and, and replaced it with a, a single large area display. And what that's going to allow them to do, not necessarily right now, but in a couple of years as they iterate on the software, hopefully the way that things are going to be presented to you in the aircraft is going to be much more fifth gen ish, if not even more from a, just how's the battlefield displayed? What, what does fusion look like? Um, so there's a lot of processing components to that and there's graphics components to that. Um, but so that, that's, you know, that's something that you would never see looking at the outside of a block three super Hornet that's new. That's actually um, should be a fairly nice upgrade. Um, trying to think there's a handful of others. Some of them have, have been in and out there. Uh, I think that, you know, we're fielding the earth block too. Um, I think as kind of as a part, it's a separate program, but oftentimes right. you'll think about like the compute architecture that's required, I think is more closely aligned with what's going to be on the block three super Hornet. So for those unfamiliar, like the, the IR search and track. So just essentially using the IR domain as another thing to sense air to air targets is something that's, that's important. And, and uh, as we move forward with air combat and, and that's a capability that super Hornet's been uh, getting ready to field here for a while. So. Yeah, there's there's a handful of uh, of improvements that I think are going to make the block three. Oh, I forget the biggest one, the 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 flight hour. So you know, right. Super Hornet is intended to be it's a six thousand hour airframe, but just mm -hmm. over twenty plus years of flying it, we've realized that hey, we can with a few changes to that airframe and doing some things differently, we can actually get ten thousand hours out of it. Um, so that's a really good investment as, as a nation, right? To to, to uh, for the existing Super Hornets to go ahead and convert them, we're doing that through a process known as Service Life Management or SLM, where they're taking existing Block 2s, um, doing some of this work to them to turn them into Block 3s and to give them that 10,000 hour, so from 6 to 10,000 hour flight. So for a much lower cost than buying a new jet, we're going to essentially get 4,000 additional hours, which which is good. So the, the yeah, the 10,000 hour airframe is, is definitely a, a great 
thing for the, the block three. So yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, it's good. no, that's cool. It'll be nice when the when the fleet yeah. gets it. I don't think it's fielded yet, but um so the Navy has some and they're right. coming off the line. I think that like the the procurement from a couple of years ago are starting to, to deliver this year and in the next. And so you're right. I don't think there's any operational squadrons that are right. flying them yet. Uh, but hopefully in the next, I have to imagine that in, in the next 12 months or so that 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 will likely be the case. Right. right. Exactly. Yeah, which is cool. It'll, it'll be super cool to see for sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I know that the processing power is vastly increased. And so that's, yep. that's going to be a big deal because you have to kind of future proof stuff. Hundred percent, yeah, and 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 that stuff. It's it, we 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 take for granted that every couple of years we buy a new cell phone and we're essentially capitalizing on what's happened in Moore's law, and we just do that in our everyday life. But with these major, you know, big major defense systems, that's not the case. So your right. compute, you know, is is limited to what you know, fifteen so years ago, whenever that was last updated in these platforms, which then just severely limits what you can do. So I think some of the improvements that you're going to see in Block Three are going to allow you know, next gen compute on platform, which will be a again beneath the skin, not something you're going to look at and see, oh wow, that look at look at the compute on that thing. But um, but it's probably going to be a far more capable plane because of some of that. Right on. Uh so yeah. you had you had the privilege to be invited to Top Gun. And uh tell me about <laughs> that because you know everyone loves the movie and and the second movie was was really good too. Uh, yeah, it was. You know, we can we can poke holes at all sorts of things from an operational perspective and what have you, but uh, yeah. but it was entertaining. It certainly was entertaining. I, you know, I, I was skeptical uh, for a sequel um, because hard to beat the first one. Um, yep. And like I said, I'm a Tomcat guy, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. But uh, but but it was a good movie. Uh, but so but you actually went to the real thing. The school was awesome. Um, and to be fair, like, I think the movies capture it great too. You know, the, the movies capture the camaraderie, the teamwork, um, a lot of the elements uh, that, that you get. So yeah, I went through in 2006 in the fall, it was about three months uh, with a team, a class of about 10 people. I can't remember exactly how many, but I mean, what's great is you're just with like 10 of your peers who were kind of hand selected to go to this course that only happens a couple times a year. Um, and your only job is to get as good as you can in the aircraft. And really then not just for your own benefit, but with the afterthought of you need to get good and be a humble learner and learn how to be a humble learner and then a humble teacher so that you can go out and teach the rest of the fleet. It's very much a discipleship kind of course. So, you know, there's an expectation when you go through Top Gun that you're going to, you're going to get to a certain level of tactical ability at really the, the kind of small unit tactics. So two ship and four ship, or as we would say in the Navy, sections and division tactics. Um, and, and a little bit of exposure and, and growing beyond it into, into larger tactics as well. But then the expectation is you're going to take that and you're going to go out and teach in the fleet and really be viewed as a as a subject matter expert and and get to wear the patch proudly on your shoulder that, that you, you went through that course and, and did that. So it's hard. You know, you're spending every hour either planning Briefing, uh, flying, debriefing, and wash, rinse, repeat. And you're just doing that uh, for a couple months straight. But you get really, really good. Like you get, you get to a point where you just feel so comfortable in the jet. Um, you really understand the implications of what you're doing, whether it's an air-to-air mission, and it's mostly air-to-air focused. There's some air-to-surface things as well, but a lot of air-to-air combat, um, going from, you know, basic dogfighting all the way up to large force uh, employment, but it was great. I mean, I did it in 2006 and, and then, uh, 
you know, that had the opportunity to go back and instruct for a couple of years at the weapons school. Yeah. And so we are kind of getting to the crux of our, of our discussion today. So you're at the weapons school Uh, for those again, that, that might not know what is the weapons school with the U S Navy from a fighter perspective. Yeah, so it's a little different model than what the Air Force has. If you're familiar, the Air Force just has one weapon school in Nellis, and they have that's kind of where all the SMEs and they go through the weapon school and and um, do that. The the Navy has essentially, again, I liken it to a little bit more of a discipleship model where uh, Nautic is like Top Gun is a part of Nautic Naval Aviation Warfare Development Center, which is in Fallon, Nevada. So that's where you go through the course. You go through Top Gun there. But then, you know, a handful of people from every course will stay on at Nautic and they'll become a part of the staff. Um, And and those are typically like cream of the crop folks. Um, And that's more analogous to what the Air Force would call the weapon school. Um, And we, we call that the weapon school as well. But then what we do is most of your staff from going through Top Gun you go back to either the East Coast Weapons School, which is at basically our East Coast, you know, nerve center for naval aviation uh, for F-18 community, which is at NAS Oceana, or you go to the West Coast Weapons School, which is in Lamore, California, which again, that's where all the fleet, all the operational squadrons. And essentially you live there to be like a standardization instructor on behalf of Top Gun. So you've got your East Coast Weapons School, which is where I was, Strike Fighter Weapons School Atlantic, um, your West Coast Weapons School, you don't deploy, you don't own any jets. You essentially are a guest instructor with all these other squadrons who invite you to come fly with them and to teach their younger pilots the most recent, the most up-to-date tactics. And not just tactics, but how do we, you know, how do we brief a flight? How do we plan a flight? How do we debrief so that we learn as much as we can from a flight? So that whole process that we we do, um, and that's I think fairly common across the Navy and the Air Force as far as really being very well standardized across those kinds of processes to just have that continuous improvement mindset. So uh, yeah, I was instructing uh, at the weapons school on the East coast, which was awesome. It was a great job. Yeah, no, it sounds like a super cool job. Um, And and I guess it's kind of, it's kind of neat. It just to maybe show up at different squadrons and be like, I'm going to be flying with you or, or, you know, be invited to fly with them. Except when you act, you accidentally crash one of their jets, and then that doesn't go over great. So, not to make light of it, it's been fifteen or sixteen years, but that's that's a that's essentially the segue to the story. If you if you want to go into it, that's a that's per- a- <laughs> it's a perfect yeah. segue. Hey, folks! Here is a message about our sponsor, Cubic Defense. The episode you're hearing today speaks in part about the training that warfighters do to be the best that they can be. Cubic supports military training by providing warfighters cutting-edge tools that are necessary for operational success. Cubic leads away with highly precise tracking systems for aircraft and test ranges. This technology has been adopted by militaries around the world and includes capabilities like air combat maneuvering instrumentation, which this year celebrates 50 years in support to Allied Air Forces. So important is this technology that it is embedded as an internal subsystem in the Joint Strike Fighter. Cubic has also developed SPEAR, a revolutionary learning platform for multi-domain operations and training. SPEAR is a Department of Defense-approved technology stack that reduces cognitive burden through optimized displays and analytics of kinetic and non-kinetic data with weapons effects in multi-domain operations and LVC environments. 
Spear melds objective and subjective data with a time-synchronized, real-time mission log and after-action reporting. This means the Spear software allows warfighters at the unit level or enterprise training and operations level to visualize operations throughout the mission cycle, which enables them to understand multi-domain operations like never before. At all levels of combat preparation and execution, Cubic Defense delivers real results. To learn more about them, please visit cubic.com. Now, let's get back to our chat. So yeah, paint the yeah. picture for me in yeah. as much detail as you can, uh, Shaka, because yeah. this is interesting. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's a life-changing story and honestly one that I think before I retired, I, I don't think I would have felt comfortable telling it publicly, but I'm, I'm super excited to talk about it. Um, and it's been a little over 15 years. So um, it was October 11th, 2007, because I went through Top Gun in 2006. So actually, I had been like a year out of Top Gun uh, at the time. I probably had about 1,200 total hours in the Super Hornet at the time. Um, which is for those, you know, that, that aren't familiar, that's actually a de- for someone that was still kind of younger in my career, I was a mid, like a mid career Lieutenant. It's a decent amount of hours I had, cause I, I, I'd spent time in Japan. So I've been right. flying quite a bit. Um, October 11th, I went to work, uh, just like any other day I had just, um, it was actually going to be my last day working before I was taking a couple weeks of baby leave because my wife was due to give birth to our middle daughter who she is now 15. Um, <laughs> Awesome. Uh, yeah. So I go to work on a normal day. Um, and I had actually just gotten my qualification to go fly the Hornet, which we talked a little bit about earlier. Some of the differences slightly smaller, a little faster, a little more nimble, a little more agile. I had like 10 hours in the Hornet. I had been over the, the previous two weeks, I had been going through the training command because at the weapon school, again, we don't own any of our jets. So it benefits us if we can fly. And at the time there was, there was actually a lot more hornets than there were super hornets at oceana or maybe it was a 50 50 mix so a lot of us as instructors were getting our we were, were getting dual called the jets are very similar but as i'm <laughs> as i'm gonna identify and in, in my talk there's some differences that, that'll that'll sneak out and, and get you so but the jets are pretty similar so i had i literally just got my hornet call my legacy hornet call um <laughs> in the sim that morning um oh, wow. so I went to work, got my call, uh, had you know a few hours, and, and then in the afternoon, I think I gave a lecture at some point in there, and then in the afternoon, I was going to fly a Red Air mission, which again, so I wasn't actually like the primary instructor. I was flying with one of the squadrons that was going through their like pre-deployment workup cycle, and they were doing some air-to-air training. So there were some of, you know, a handful of our instructors were flying kind of on the blue side, and I was flying on the red side that day in one of their jets in a Legacy Hornet. It was a VFA 87A model, so like the oldest model of the Hornet, um, uh, F-18A. And it was my actually my first flight in an F-18A. So, which is which is actually a slightly, you know, if, if you look at the like the different boxes and there's slight differences between each of the models. The A is actually like the most stripped down because it's oldest. It has the least amount of avionics. And uh, as, as you'll, you'll hear, as I get into my story a little bit more, it's got, you know, probably the fastest uh, onset rate of G and, and, and speed. It's just a quick little plane. Mm. Uh, I like to tell pe- people it flew a lot more like a, uh, a little, like a go-kart uh, than the, if the super Hornet's a Cadillac, you know, very kind of, soft steering and and uh the the a model was was a pretty slick little you know snappy little little version uh, of of what i was used to flying right 
Right. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So, so you show up at, uh, at VFA 87 and, uh, yep. And so you're going to be red air. Was it a two ship red air or four ship or. It was actually, so it was a part of a, um, you know, so, so just very quick background on red versus blue. If, if I'm sure, you know, Jody, but, um, others might not. So anytime we do training, we typically will, we assign teams, you know, and, and typically the U S whatever, whoever's doing our tactic and where the real training objectives are on the blue team. So that's when we go out and we say, Hey, we're going to, we're going to try to do this mission in the way that we would in combat and we're going to train to it. And then we assign the other team, the red team to be, Hey, just whoever you're going to simulate today, whatever country, whatever threat. Um, so we don't necessarily fly our red aircraft um, as we would our blue because we're trying to test certain training objectives. So in this particular flight, I think that there were three red air. My call sign was Viper two. We use, we use just airborne call signs for aircraft and for red air. We oftentimes use like snake call signs. So Cobra or there's a lot of different things you do. But so my call sign was Viper two. Um, I, so I wasn't the lead. I was just out there to be a part of the red air presentation. And the objective was uh, we were out there for like a double cycle red air, which actually means that you're really, you try to be judicious with your gas so that the blue fighters will come out and they'll actually use a ton of gas really quickly and then go home. And if the red is, has been smart in managing their gas, you can actually get through two rounds of blue to come out and throw punches and to do their, their stuff. Um, so we were double cycle red. Um, and I think there were two different cycles of two blue aircraft. So it was like a two V three. And, but there was an E2 that was out there and the specific training objectives for this particular event was we were going to start kind of what we call BVR, like beyond visual range, you know, pretty far apart. Uh, they're going to, we're going to exchange some shots. They're going to take some shots. We'll take some shots. But, um, and usually, you know, you hope that blue kills the red and you never, the two aircraft never pass. But this particular flight was meant to be that we were going to drive, the red air was going to survive until a merge happened, which essentially means that we see each other visually. And then we do a little bit of like visual dogfighting. And that was like the training objective of this particular flight was to get to that point. Okay. And I guess it's probably important to speak about the weather. What was the weather like that day? Yeah. Yeah. It was, you know, it was a good day. It's, it's, it's so weird. You never, you never wake up on any given day and think like, I'm going to have, um, you know, the most life-changing event that you could possibly imagine. It's just, it's weird. Like it's the only time in my life where that happened, where I woke up, it was a very normal day. Like I ate Subway uh, for lunch. Um, you know, it was a nice, it was a, it was a beautiful October day. You know, the weather was fine. Um, when we walked out to the jets, you know, because I didn't have experience with this particular jet, we were going over, which just with other people in the, in the flight, like going over some of the specifics on, and I was, I mean, I was fully qualified. Like, it's not like there's nothing wrong on the, the side of the Navy. Obviously we've, we've, the Navy has relooked at a few things because we're always looking to try to prevent accidents from happening. But, um, sure. yeah. you know, we're talking about various things and you always, you know, you brief the weather, but it was, there was maybe some lower clouds, but we were, the fight was going to occur over water off the coast of Oceana. So anywhere from the ranges out there, go out a couple hundred miles. And I think that where I, uh, uh, where the accident happened was probably 80, 70, 80, 90 miles off the coast, somewhere like that. So, um, you know, the only thing, you know, I will say I, t- I took off um, a little bit late because the jet was getting gas. So it was a little, a little late. So the other ones are out there. So, on the way out to the flight, I did what we call as a G warm. So anytime before you actually start this kind of engagement, mm-hmm. you do a quick warm up for a couple purposes. One of them, 
is for your body, just to see how your body feels when it's exposed to G's, because, you know, being under the, the force of, of G's, uh, when you put on a big turn in a, in a jet, uh, has an impact and you kind of want to warm your body up for that. So I did a G warm. It was a super quick. Um, I remember in the back of my mind thinking like, whoa, this jet, <laughs> this jet's a little snappier. It's a little faster, a little, little, right. little faster onset, you know, a little more responsive than what I was expected. Right. Um, and I kind of made a note of that. Uh, unfortunately not enough. Um, and then I showed up and I joined my flight of three red air. Uh, and we just kind of hung out for the first probably 20 or 30 minutes of the flight. I was just a, non-maneuvering very benign target just out there after i'd done my g1 uh okay and then once you finished that then what was yeah. the next serial what, what kind of led into the mishap so the second when um it was the last engagement we were supposed to be having with the first wave of fighters so like the second wave of blue aircraft were coming out there's an e2 on station and we're going to come out and now this is my time for, okay, Shaka, you know, you're going to stay alive. You're not going to die and you're going to make it to this merge and, and essentially merge with this other aircraft and start turning. So it's all going again, everything's perfectly normal right up until the moment it's not, you know, and, and, um, right. And so I, I basically at, at, a, at a certain range, I was able I locked this blue aircraft up with my radar. So I've got him locked. He's doing a defensive maneuver, which typically is going to lead him to go kind of downhill. So he's he's descending, um, losing altitude. And I'm up at about 20,000 feet and I've got a radar lock on him and, you know, 10 miles or so out. And and I just start kind of coming down to try to pick him up visually because we're going to try to do this this dogfight. So I'm coming downhill, maybe 10 or 20 degrees, nose low. Um I'm used to, again, used to flying the Super Hornet. I'm not really paying attention to my throttles because the Super Hornet doesn't accelerate a whole lot, even when you're going downhill. I, I wasn't in, I wasn't in like afterburner, but mm -hmm. I also wasn't probably at idle. And I remember picking up, um, picking up the aircraft, uh, doing his defense, maybe when he's about five miles away. So now I can see him visually. And then he turns back into me. And one of the last things I remember as, as we're approaching what we call the merge, which is where your two aircraft will, will pass each other. So it's like, you know, when you're driving on a car, going to the highway, every, every car you pass the other direction, that's the merge, you know? So you're not going to turn until the merge happens. So I'm pointed at this aircraft approaching the merge. We're going to have a right to right. And I remember coming back into the cockpit to look at my airspeed because you know, that's usually a good thing to check right before uh, you hit the merge. And I remember seeing like Mach 1.0 something, which is for those of you that uh, have flown a lot, like that's not the speed you want to be at when you're approaching the merge. Like it's, it's way too fast. Um, I didn't think I was, at, I mean, and this was just, again, like a split second memory. Um, so, you know, I went to idle and, and put out the speed brakes uh, and then we passed and then I just pulled back on the stick and the lights went out. I blacked out. So, and that probably occurred at like 12,000 feet or so. So essentially what happened, um, the best, now I'm going to go back to Top Gun 2, the movie on you. So for those of you that have seen it, uh, I think Coyote is his call sign. There's the one scene where the one pilot essentially blacks out because they talk about the, 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 the force of the G and they actually do a really good job of showing that in the movie Top Gun of where you kind of get the tunnel vision you get the gray out where you lose color. Like there's just a lot of weird you know, scientific -y things that happen um, when you, you essentially force the blood out of your brain. Um, and what happened to coyote in the movie is exactly what happened to me. But in this case, unfortunately for me, I was at essentially the G onset rate when I pulled back on the stick from going that fast was more than what my body I think was ready to, to, 
to take. Um, there are things that we do or we should do called like anti-G straining maneuvers, but mm-hmm. you know, full disclosure. And, and I told like, I never had great habit patterns of, of, of doing that before a pull. And my body just simply was not prepared for what was going to happen. And I knocked myself out and I'm in a single seat aircraft now unconscious at 12,000 feet um, heading downhill. So typically the movie also does a pretty good job about this. The typical G lock, um, G induced loss of consciousness, you're going to be unconscious for about 15 to 20 seconds. Um, and the movie actually portrays that fairly well. If you watch coyote, the scene where he's going downhill and Maverick's yelling, like, you know, pull up, coyote, you know, all that stuff. Yeah. And then the jet starts yelling at him. Like, when, again, I, I actually had, I was involved in the filming a little bit with the movie, which was awesome. Well, I had okay. no idea. Yeah. I had, I had no idea that that scene was going to be in there. So when I saw that movie that it, it, for the first time, it made me a little uncomfortable because I was like, Oh, okay. I've been there. Um, yeah. The, sure. Wow. So, you know, so, by so by the grace of God, I, I woke up, right. You know, but I woke up, um, after probably what the, you know, what they would estimate maybe 15 to 18 seconds. But at this point now, my aircraft is bullseye nose low, which bullseye just meaning like pointed straight down, right. um, estimated. And we never really got, they never recovered like the flight data recorder. So a lot of the, this was just kind of estimated based off of, uh, IFF hits and things like that. Uh, and just reconstruction of, of the flight path. But the parameters when I woke up were roughly probably three to 4,000 feet, 550 knots or so and pointed bullseye street nose low. And, and for, from my perspective, I just simply remember waking up and it's almost, it's hard to describe. It's almost like wake, waking up in a dream. You know, have you ever, have you ever woken up from in the middle of the night and been confused about where you were and just kind of almost like, like if you wake up in the wrong mode of sleep and I don't know enough is it ramp sleep or whatever. And you kind of wake up in a panic and you're not sure where you are. Yeah. Yeah. That was, I can remember. So that's kind of what happened, except the thing that I was looking at was through the aircraft pointed straight down in the water. And I just, and, and again, this is where by the grace of God, my, my instinct was to reach for the ejection handle and pull it. And it was the right instinct. Had I not done that, I, I would have hit the water. Like the jet was probably three or four seconds at that parameter from hitting the water. And had I tried to recover it, it, it was, it was not recoverable. Holy. Spirits, so, man. yeah. So, um, so I remember that it's, again, it's weird. It's like this weird dream that happened at some point in my life that, that I, I can just still picture that, that image of waking up in a state of confusion and not knowing how I got there, but I'm staring through a HUD at three to 4,000 feet and, screaming at you know almost the speed of sound at the water and i just i reached for the handle and i pulled it um a little aside on that like i made a point throughout the rest of my career when i did get back into flying and everything anytime i was teaching students like in their annual simulator checks i would always try to give them an emergency that makes them actually pull the ejection handle and i know that that sounds weird but i basically you know i've I've lost friends that you just wish that they would (laughs) have you know, reach for the handle uh, a, like a second earlier, you know, and they didn't. And um, for me, that that's, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know why that was my instinct, but it was, you know, and had I not done that, I, I wouldn't be here to talk about it. So, um, yeah. Wow. So, <laughs> you know, I'll pause Shaka, there for a second. Yeah. You know, Shaka, I'm, I'm, I'm actually glad that you have, um, uh, have enabled students to do that. Because, you know, there's that aspect of muscle memory, but just the fact of, you know, most of the time you go up in a simulator and yeah, you know, it's forgiving, 
because yes, because it's meant to be forgiving, right? Yeah, you can do repetitions, you can do all sorts of stuff there. Not wasting gas, you're not you know not wasting gas, yeah. but you know you're not using gas, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, it's procedural, but yeah, I wonder how many times they actually go through the actual point of saying, okay, you got to eject now, you know. Yeah. Well, and, and what's, what's weird, you, it, it's, it's a little bit weird psychologically because when you're in a sim, you're always being evaluated and you're always worried that you're going to do something wrong. That's going to make you fail the sim, you know? Right. And right. So yeah. In, in, in most people don't like the, the right answer is typically not pull the handle. Like there's usually, usually <laughs> something that something went horribly wrong at some point earlier in the flight. Um, but that's not always the case, you know, and, and I, I just I, I think that that's something as I look back at, you know, for me as, as a professional aviator, um, I don't know what put I mean, again, I don't know why that was my instinct, but it was and it was the right instinct and I, and I wouldn't be here to talk about it. So I tried to make a point to, to, to have that conversation. And I can't tell you how many times in the sim, basically what happens, at least in our sims, like if you don't do that and you actually crash the aircraft in the sim which it'll let you do the sim just freezes when you crash and then the entire screens around you turn red and it never bothered me before my accident as i got back into flying and and that happened like that i would lose sleep like if i if that happened in the sim i'd go home and be like man the decisions that i made today if i made them in a real aircraft like i I wouldn't be around anymore you know and and i enjoyed like again teaching students that um later in my career after my accident, just that, Hey, you know, it's, it's not the answer that anyone ever wants to take and everything that happened up until the point that I made the decision, like that's on me. Like I should have been better at knowing my own body's limitations and I should have been better at like, there's all those things. But at the end of the day, when the position presented itself that like my instinct was to pull the handle and it it was the right instinct. So Thank God yeah. for that. Yeah. Thank God yeah. for that. And, you know, I got to tell you, like, thank God also for the technology of these ejection seats, you know. Oh, Ama- oh 100%. Amazing. Yes. Yeah. Um, I, I shouldn't. Yeah. I was well outside the envelope for that seat. So that it, this was the F-18A, which actually right. had an older, it had the SJU-5 NACES ejection seat, right. um, which is a Martin Baker product. Uh, love Martin Baker. You yeah. know, it was. Yeah. Going faster, like if you kind of put up the the ejection envelope for what's supposed to be a survivable, uh, I, I was I was well outside of it, and it and it worked. Wow. Um, so yeah, pretty amazing. And even the the I'll give I'll uh, even just like the attitude for awareness. Like I don't know if this is a hundred percent what happened, but there's a system in the Hornet in the Super Hornet called uh, oh gosh, it's not GCAS. There's Auto GCAS um, TAS Terrain. Terrain avoidance warning system that essentially is like it's supposed to start. The jet's supposed to start yelling at you if you're going to hit the ground. And in the in the movie Maverick, they actually brought it in. And there's a tone that you get that says like "pull up, pull up." Yeah. And it's a very it's a very distinct voice. And and I, 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 and I believe that that's probably what was waking me up is my 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 brain was hearing that like "pull up, pull up." Mm-hmm. And as I kind of came out of that that stupor and I pulled the handle, um, and it got me out. Yeah. Wow, man. Like, I mean, I, I tell you, you know, my palms are clammy listening to it, you know, and <laughs> I wasn't even there, but, I, and so I guess if we were to go back and critique what happened, it, it's partly a function and, and you've mentioned it already, but it's really kind of the onset of G between a legacy or a classic Hornet and the super Hornet was just different that, that, it, you know, that, that was just uh, one of the factors. Obviously. Sure. 
Yeah, uh, sure. It, it, and it's it's one of those things like you can pull. It might not have been that different. I don't know. It definitely felt different to me that day. Um, I think that the the acceleration that happened coming downhill was not something I was really expecting. But again, I'm in a cockpit that looks and feels and smells a lot like the cockpit that I'm really comfortable and used to. Right. Um, I, I, and this is kind of thankfully, like I wasn't wearing the joint helmet mounted queuing system, which is our, right. and most of my career I had, but this right. aircraft didn't have it, which is probably a good thing because I probably would have had a lot worse neck injuries had I had it on. Um, but even like your, your ability to mon monitor your airspeed in the helmet. Like, I feel like had I been wearing that, I might've been a little more cognizant of the fact that I was accelerating in this, this downhill um, descent uh, as I was approaching the merge. Maybe, I, I don't know. Um, but yeah. You know, all those factors. Um, yeah. So once you pull the handle, what do you <laughs> remember then? Yeah. So, so then it becomes the movie I go to for this is the analogies I go and I haven't seen it in a long time, but the opening scene uh, from the movie Castaway. Okay. Does a yeah. pretty good job of, if you remember that when Tom Hanks is in the FedEx jet that, that mm -hmm. crashes, it's this very disorienting where it's like, I think it happens at nighttime. Mine was a day, but it's like, there's scenes of like black and nothingness and quiet. And then it's like chaos and terror and then black and nothingness and quiet. The next two hours of my life, that's kind of about what it was. Like, I don't, I don't have, great memories because I think I was probably in and out of consciousness, but I remember seeing the water at various times. So I'll, I'll go through real quickly what happened. So essentially when you eject at that speed at that altitude, you're going to break a lot of things so, uh, because you, it, it's like, you know, drive down the road at hundred miles an hour. Don't advocate doing this, but and then stick your arm out the window and see what happens. Like it's going to snap back. Right. So I punch, I punch out of this aircraft where I'm in a climate controlled environment. Um, and immediately my body is exposed to that air and everything broke. Like I just, I, I, I uh, yeah. So I'll, I'll real quickly hit, hit uh, some of the injuries, but you know, broke a couple of ver uh, vertebrae, my helmet rips off. Um, so there's probably some traumatic, uh, some TBI. I dislocate and break my right shoulder, break my right scapula, break my right humerus uh, in a couple places, break my right hand, um, break my right leg, uh, the tib and fib. So I have a large open compound fracture in my right leg, the tib fib, which I had to have end up having six six different surgeries on, uh, but they put me back together real well. So that's the right. Oh, and and I collapsed my right lung. So that's the, the right side of my body. The left side, I dislocated my left shoulder and had avulsion fractures there as well. Broke a bunch of bones in the left hand. Um, and I think that's it. Uh, I'm, yeah, so I'm, that's enough. I'm not, that's I'm enough. not in good shape. I'm in bad shape. Um, so, you know, and now again, by the grace of God, right? Like this is one of those, like, I'm not doing anything to keep myself alive. Like nothing. Interesting. So okay. I, 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 I mean, cause both my arms are completely not functional. My, my right leg is completely snapped in half. Uh, I, I've only got one lung to breathe with. Um, so, so I, I don't remember being in the air. I probably was only in the air for like a couple seconds. Like I probably shot out from that pure vertical, uh, orientation shot out vertically a, enough time for the chute to open, um, get one or two swings. And then I hit the water and thankfully like, the, the jet probably hit the water four seconds prior to me and is in a million pieces and is now like, it, you know, in <laughs> thinking in, in tiny pieces to the bottom of the ocean, never to be recovered. Um, 
but I, and I, but, and I land somewhere near that oil slick, which ends up being like one of the, the many things that actually made them be able to find me because my helmet rips off. Um, my, when I hit the water, we have a system known as sea wars. Uh, it's like sea something. It, it's basically when your, your vest, your life preserver that we wear senses seawater, it will automatically inflate. Right. Um, and, and, uh, you know, again, by the grace of God, that worked, that worked perfectly. So now my head is, is being kept above water. Uh, my helmet, which has been ripped off, but that's actually probably a good thing because had it not my mask, I probably would have drowned because I would have been breathing in seawater. So the fact that my mask and helmet and that whole apparatus ripped off, although it made it harder for them to find me because I don't have my white reflective helmet tape to see, right. it actually enabled me to breathe for the next couple hours because likely I would have eventually started taking in seawater and I wouldn't have, like my arms had zero functionality, so I wouldn't have been able to strap anything off. Um, so yeah, so I'm in the water. Uh, and, and from, from my perspective, it's very much, uh, a my, I remember feelings of disorientation and like not really knowing where I was, how I got there. Um, I knew I was not, in, not in a good spot. Um, but I definitely remember hearing jets overhead and I'll, and I'll talk kind of about like what was happening with, with that effort. Yeah. Um, and it was one of those things that motivated me when I was, you know, a couple of years later, it took me almost two years to get back in the cockpit, uh, just from a physical healing. Um, but you know, I had a, a bunch of combat deployments after that. And I think of like the, the, a thing that sustained me in that when I'm, I'm literally in the water, barely kind of in and out of consciousness was hearing aircraft overhead. I knew that I wasn't alone and I knew, I knew I was in a bad spot, but I knew that I wasn't alone. And when I went overseas and deployed, like I always used to tell people that like, there's someone down there on some remote outpost in Afghanistan uh, or Iraq, it's maybe scared and, and they're, you know, they're uh, having similar thoughts to what I probably had for a couple hours. Uh, and they're probably in a, a ton of danger and just, just the presence, just us being around, uh, I think gives them, cause I, it's, sometimes it's easy to do those long missions in Afghanistan and to kind of feel like you're not doing anything. Cause you don't, you don't drop a bomb or you don't, you know, you don't really do anything that's measurable. Right. Um, but for me, I used to like to tie that to that as like just our presence uh, for me that the hearing the presence while I was in the water of hearing aircraft and then eventually helicopters overhead. Um, that was kind of what kept me, kept me going. I'm so glad for that. And yeah, yeah like, I mean, I, I've not been in combat, but you know, I've been around enough planes in my life to know that sound. I can absolutely appreciate how, how reassuring that would be yeah and yeah. particularly for somebody you know that just had you know what happened to you you know and yeah the position that you're in wow and so yeah so speaking to that um obviously you know you were you were in that engagement with that other fighter and and this incident happened uh yeah what's your understanding of what those guys were doing yeah yeah so the rest the the rest of the situation in my perspective is just pretty miraculous and it's just Again, all the right people being in the right places, doing the right things and just being really good at their jobs and just being professionals and being like, that's, those are all reasons. Not if none of those things, uh, if some of those things didn't happen, I, I wouldn't be here as well because so, so essentially the person that I merged with, mm -hmm. so the, the other air, the other aircraft that I merged with, mm -hmm. he saw me, but by a very kind of a random fluke thing, someone else, there was another engagement going on and those guys called a knock it off. So as soon as our aircraft passed, what he heard, what the other aircraft that I passed um, heard was a knock it off, which basically means, Hey, we're done fighting. 
Right. Uh, and it was kind of an accidental thing. So he actually didn't, he didn't see me go in the water. He did not, he saw, he saw me pass him. And then as soon as I did what I did, this knock it off gets called in the radio. Um, and he continues, he basically just levels his wings and, and goes on. So, you know, no fault of his own. He's sure. just doing what's normal. Sure. So it wasn't until, you know, within a couple, we have again, standard, like the reasons why you do things in standard ways, um, everything matters. Right. So we have standard things called, uh, we'll just, we'll call the knock it off on the radio and everyone on the flight has to acknowledge it in some level, just to make sure that like not one person is still trying to fight while, Hey, we've ended this training event. Mm-hmm. So on the, 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 the radio that was my tactical frequency with the other aircraft, my flight lead calls the knock it off and I, and I don't answer them because I'm <laughs> the aircraft no longer exists. Right. right. And right. I'm not in it. Yeah. Uh, um, and I can't talk on a radio I- I- anyways. Um, so uh, he, he super experienced flight lead just basically was like, Hey, you know, dash two, did you copy the knock it off? Does it a few times. I don't say anything. And rather than just dropping it, which I think a lot of people might do like, Oh, he's probably got a bad radio. Like he, he goes on the other radio and he calls the E2. He's like, Hey, he's like, I'm having a hard time getting in touch with Viper two. Uh, can you, can you try him on this frequency? And the E2 is like, no, I don't see him. And that was when immediately, there, so within a couple minutes, um, even though no one saw the, the accident happen, um, there's, you know, it's kind of the spidey sense, uh, mm-hmm. hairs in the back of people's neck going up. Um, and at the same time, there was also, we were running this as a tax event. So we had basically people back at Oceana uh, from my squadron, you know, good friends of mine who were essentially like the, the referees of the event from the ground at home. And they were, because we were like in between the first wave and the second wave, they, the two guys were actually like passing over. So they weren't really paying attention, but immediately the E2 starts calling them on the radio. And we use a call sign Jedi for those guys, which is kind of cool. So they're saying, Hey, Jedi, do you see Viper two? And those guys are like, how oh, are you calling me? And then, but then they look and they're like, no, actually we don't see Viper two either. So within a couple minutes, a bunch of people are like, Hey, where'd this jet go? But everyone thinks like, Oh, he probably, his transponder probably just got turned off or, you know, something mm-hmm. He's, ha- he's lost his, you know, having an electrical problem. Mm-hmm. But very quickly, the folks that at Jedi that had access and they're looking at like a picture and could rewind, they're like, oh, this is, they're like, we're going to call a- air traffic control and see if if there's someone squawking emergency or something. But we're also going to rewind the tapes and see what happened. So they were around the tapes like three or four minutes and they basically saw that my jet went nose low and then just disappeared. And uh, it's one, one of my closest friends was one of those guys. And I mean, we're still very close friends and, and I'm, both of them are very close friends with them. They both have told me like, dude, we like, but you're gone. Like there's no, no indication I had ejected. There's no, no, no one sees a shoot, nothing. Um, it just looks like my jet goes in the water. So they immediately give their, what the, but here's again, another, like one of these coincidences that, you know, by the grace of God, they pull because the jet's going straight down. They actually could pull the exact coordinate of where the jet looks like it went in the water. And they passed that to Viper one, my flight lead and said, Hey, this is where we, we last see his jet, but it, it disappeared. So he goes over there and immediately he sees a big oil slick in the water. He's like, yep, jet went in the water here. So they start now the E2 who's, who's just happened to be a part of this event. Um, one of those guys had the phone or the, uh, the radio frequency for the coast guard station at Elizabeth city and just starts calling them rather than waiting for like the normal rescue process to work. So the E2 is like basically casting lines anywhere. Like, are there any shipping vessels? Are there any, and all they have now is like an oil slick in the water. That's it. And this is, 
mind you, this is 420-ish, 425 p.m. on October 11th. The water is is getting to be pretty cold. The sun is setting uh, at roughly 620. So I have basically about two hours before I probably don't live through the night, you know, if they don't find me. Um, so the E2 just basically throwing every line out to try to get someone launched quickly. So, you know, the, the Coast Guard crew now down at, at Elizabeth City who hears the call come in, not through like the normal JPRC, like the normal notification means. Um, they just hear some random E2 person calling them on their base radio. Uh, but those guys, one of them was, was so it's like two young, younger Coast Guard pilots, but one of them had just transitioned as like a, as a, as an army Blackhawk uh, guy. And okay. the other one uh, was a, uh, was a Marine Corps uh, a helicopter pilot. So they actually were both like pretty well seasoned pilots. And they're like, I know, I know what the C2 is saying. We need to launch now. And those guys were airborne within like 10, 15 minutes, which was awesome with yeah. just, you know, stellar crew, like sw the SAR swimmer, everyone. Um, it was just, it was the rockstar team it just happened to be there. So they get airborne. Um, I'm probably 80 miles or so off the coast. So it's not a quick, not a quick trip for anyone. Right. Right. My flight leads getting pretty low on gas, but thankfully, again, all these things just kind of piecing together. The second, the second set of blue fighters who are just coming out and they've got all their gas. They actually happen to be from my squadron that I ended up commanding, Felix VFA thirty one. Wow. Um, so one of them was my well, a Top Gun instructor of mine. So like people I know, they're out there. They've got a full tank of gas. So they basically do a handover and they get down low. And basically after 10 minutes or so of seeing the oil slick, one of them believes that he starts to see a raft in the water. So he's young. And now I, I with my, all my broken arms and I, I didn't, the raft never made it out. My raft was attached as a part of my seat kit that the SARS were eventually cut off uh, from me. So what I suspect in hindsight is he probably saw my black LPU, the life mm -hmm. preserver that had inflated and mm -hmm. fought, and it was just down super low, trying to look for something in the debris and in the waves. And he saw that and he thought it was a raft. Good on him, right? Um, so for the next hour, hour and 15, while they're waiting for the helicopter to come out, he's just down there trying to keep eyes on um, the coast. Or I'm sorry, the E2 is trying to get ships to come over to be a part of the solution, but we're, I was pretty far out. Um, there weren't really any Navy, like Norfolk helicopters that were really available. Um, so as I'm in the water and what I remember of hearing jets overhead, it was those initial guys just down low trying to look for some sign of life because by the time they, they got there, my parachute probably had just disconnected and was underwater. Uh, I can't signal. I can't talk on the radio. Um, yeah. So they also, the E2 did a great job of basically calling back and saying, hey, if this, if this effort goes on all night, we, we're going to need a lot more aircraft. So they spun up. Um, another set of two Super Hornets from VFA 213, which is a two-seat squadron. Mm -hmm. So back to the conversation earlier, getting getting a second set of eyeballs in each aircraft really was going to be important. So those guys, I mean, they went from zero to airborne in like 20 or 30 minutes too. So they're they're out there um, as basically as um, the first two set of aircraft are running out of gas they're showing up as the second two set of aircraft and the helicopter is arriving on station all at about the same time. And this is probably like six, this is probably about 10 or 15 minutes prior to sunset. And, um, the, uh, the second set of aircraft come out, the guy that just happened to hop in the back of that, uh, James Bates, um, he, uh, he happened to be a former Navy search and rescue swimmer. 
So like very experienced in search and rescue operations just so happened. Yeah. Um, okay. And, and he basically showed up and he's like, I think I see what looks like a sea die marker, which is one of those. If you remember, I, I'm going to keep going back to Top Gun. Right. Um, yeah. Goose in Top Gun, when Goose is in the water, the discoloration in the water around him, that's the sea die marker that probably Maverick deployed right. so that the helicopter could see him. Well, the way those things work, like you actually have to, in order to get it to work, you have to actually like take it out and use it. What they think happened is that mine probably got ripped in the ejection and had a little hole in it. And that over time was slowly leaking out sea dye. Um, but because the second guy uh, uh, was kind of knew what that looked like, he was like, hey, I think there's a sea dye marker in there. Um, and the helicopter is just getting on station and, and he tells them, hey, you know, we don't see anyone. We kind of lot. We thought there was a raft. We can't really see that anymore. Um, and uh, the, the helo guys, they're, they're like, yeah, there's definitely a wreckage here. We don't see any people. Um, they start their little pattern. And then the, the same guy who saw the sea down marker is like, hey, helicopter, turn left. Uh, I see he thought he saw smoke in the air, which I never did any smoke. He's like, I got smoke uh, from a survivor. You know, you're left 100 meters and literally vectored him right on top of me. What we think happened is probably as the sun was essentially cresting and getting low on the horizon, he's seeing some interesting shadows. He picked up my head and, and my, my LPU in the water and probably a little bit of that sea dye marker coming out. And just to him, it looked like, like a smoke, like a streamer or something like that. Right, right. He literally, he literally vectored the helicopter on top of me. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable, miraculous. Wow. And the second time, the second time the helicopter went past the guys in the back are like, Hey, we see him. We see him. Um, pretty wow. amazing. So then I'll, so I'll keep, I'll, I'll, I, I, I should have warned you beforehand. Once I get going on the story, I don't, I don't really take, <laughs> I don't come up for air very much. Um, I don't need you to come up for it uh, yeah, because, okay. it, you know, at the end of the, at the end of the day, like, I mean, hearing this, this chain of events and how it uh, all unfolded is amazing. And talk about all of those, like, just, you know, as you said, by the grace of God, like all, all yeah. of these people, the right people, the right time yeah. on the ball, uh, yeah. you know, geez, all of that could have gone differently. You know, thank, thank yeah. God it didn't, you know, like yeah. I mean, that, yeah. it, it the way it did. Yeah. So, so, so the next, so, so yeah, hundred percent. So the, when the helicopter guys now see me again, I mean, it was the A team, like these guys were awesome. They, um, the guy in the back, like their experienced uh, SAR swimmer was like, Hey, Hey boss, I gotta, I gotta get in the water. And the pilot normally like having talked to them now, and this may or may not be true, but like what they said, like their normal procedures would be, let's, let's, let's drop a, let's drop something in the water, see if the person can get strapped in. Um, and because obviously anytime a swimmer gets in the water that, that introduces more risk, like there's more danger to the crew, like totally get that, understand it. But, but having, I went down later, I met all these guys and they're awesome. And, and, uh, he basically was like, yeah, we flew over you a couple of times. Like you weren't splashing, you weren't signaling, you were basically Bob, you were bobbing in the water, which is true. Right. I had no functionality, right. uh, of, of, of any of my limbs. So he basically is telling the pilot, he's like, Hey, I'm getting in the water. I'm, I'm going in. And the pilot was like, okay, cool. Go, go for it. Cause there's, you know, there's not much time, even at this point, like it's not certain that I'm going to be rescued. Right. It, it, it's, there are a lot of things that could go wrong. Uh, at, even that since they, you know, even though they see me, so dude hops in the water. Um, I remember it. Like I remember him coming up to me and having a conversation with me. It's really weird. Um, but I remember, you know, saying something to him like, Hey, I, you know, I think that all my limbs are broken. Like I can't really do anything. 
he's like, okay, we're, you know, we're going to get you in a stretcher. So he then like, he either signals up to the healer or says something and the healer has to stand off. They drop a, like a, uh, uh, like a, not a basket, but like no kidding, like a stretcher into the water because he told the guys, he's like, hey, this guy's really, really banged up. We got to make sure we stabilize him before we bring him out of the water. Um, so he swims over, gets this thing, brings it over to me. I remember that. I remember him telling me, like, hey, sir, like, I'm going to go grab this stretcher. I'm just swimming away like 50 meters. I'm going to come right back. Uh, and I remember that, like, okay, I'll be here. <laughs> um, and uh, and then he, you know, he puts me in this thing and has they had me out of the out of the water in like 10 minutes, you know, probably 10 or 15 minutes prior to sunset. And that's what um, I think I was telling you before we started talking. Like the 15 minutes of fame that I never wanted to have was uh, the next day on Fox News. Uh, there's a there's a picture of me coming up the Co- Coast Guard helicopter in the stretcher, and the the pilot the 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 the, the head pilot or the the um, the pilot in command of the 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 helo talking um, to Fox News, which was, I mean, super cool, like amazing team for those guys. Not how I ever wanted to be in the news, <laughs> but uh, it's an amazing story, you know? And, and um, so, so, you know, that's very quick on that. Like, I don't remember after that interaction, I really don't remember anything until maybe like another day or so. Like I'm kind of out of it, but talking to those guys afterwards there, they told me, they're like, yeah, you were, you were conscious in the helicopter and we've, we thought you're probably going to make it, but like, it was not certain, like you were in really rough shape. And I guess I wanted to sit up, but they were so concerned that I had, I had broken my back, which I had, um, that they, they didn't let me do that. They thought I was probably going to lose my leg because it was such a mess. Um, and they thought about resetting it in, in the Gila, but they basically took me to, to Norfolk, uh, Sentara general. Cause, um, <laughs> yeah, one of the pilots had a son who had gotten in like a dirt bike accident a couple weeks prior and had to get like medevac somewhere. And, they took him to Norfolk Centera General and like he got great orthopedic care. So that was honestly like a big part of like, where should we take him? Like these guys are out of Elizabeth City, North Carolina. Right. Um, you'd think we were kind of joking, like, I think they would have like protocol of where to go. But um, yeah, turns, yeah, out, think. Yeah, turns out they were like, no, it's so different because they end up rescuing people all over the place. So right. right. their decision, which I think was a great decision, like we can go to Norfolk General. Um, they've got good trauma care. Uh, it's also, you know, they're wanting to be like, where is it going to make sense for his family, which my wife, who is, you know, four days away from giving birth to our daughter, um, if you remember how I started this story. Yeah, I do. Um, so so I'm in the helicopter, I, I think, according to them, kind of in and out of consciousness, but I don't really remember, remember that at all. And I get there, you know, fr- from my wife's perspective, I mean, God bless her, like they, they they put off telling her until as long, like they basically just, they didn't want to go tell her like, Hey, heaven's been in an accident and we haven't found him, but they obviously could, they knew it was probably going to break on the news at six. So literally like as soon as they found me and they had me in the stretcher and knew where they're going to take me, um, my CO of my squadron and my friend who, who were, they were kind of managing the whole effort from there, uh, drive over there. They called her right before they got to the door and just said, Hey, Wendy, like, um, yeah, this is EP, but um, Kevin's okay, but something's happened and we're going to be at the door in 30 seconds. And and then they, they took her to the hospital. And then uh, four days later, my daughter was born and I was in the same hospital. I was like a couple rooms down and the pictures we have are kind of crazy because I was in like my wife brought my daughter, Micah, um, over into my room because I was in much worse shape than, than what they were. Um, but uh Yeah. Holy smokes, man. 
Where did so I'll I come go? Up for, I'll, yeah, I'll come up for air for a minute there. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> don't be, don't be sorry at all. Like, I mean, you know, hearing you speak about the, it, it, thank God everything turned out. Okay. Like it, all yeah. the stars aligned, you know, thank God yeah. that you, you're, you're safe. You know, you have a healthy daughter, um, you know, your wife is okay. Even the way that, that the CEO, it, it, you know, yeah. the, oh, they're, they're thinking about how we don't want to, we don't want to shock her or, or, you know, yeah. And, and yeah, like, I mean, man, I can't, I can't think of, you know, if I were trying to poke holes at, Oh, maybe they should have done this or that, you know, I, I, I cannot armchair quarterback, but it sounds like everything just went right. You know? Yeah. For, for as crazy of a situation as it was, right. and is, is really is life-changing and as terrible as it was like everything went right. You know, like yeah. it, you couldn't, um, you know, and then after that, you know, I became a big fan. I, I spent a couple days in Norfolk general until the uh, first couple surgeries there. They moved me over to Portsmouth where I got, I got great care at Portsmouth. And I really made a point the rest of my career to, to, to be defensive when people want to bash on military medicine and Navy medicine. And there's, there's, yeah, peace. There, there's going to be issues with, with everything, but I, I got taken care of really well. Um, I had great care at Portsmouth. I, I moved into a, uh, a rehab facility for you know a month or two and then i went home and and just continued outpatient rehab while i was still an instructor at the weapon school i basically now it can just do like classroom instruction and but i was i was eager to get back into it and and you know i felt like i had an attitude towards life that it, you know if, if if it worked out that i could fly again I, I wanted to give it a shot but i didn't know you know went from i'm probably gonna live uh to hey my life's not in danger but I might lose my leg to no, it looks like you're going to keep your leg, but you might not, you know, just kind of, you took it day by day as far as what the, what the expectations were going to be. And, uh, and it got to a point where, you know, a doctor said to me something along the lines of like, you're, you're, this is a life-changing event. It's a life-changing medical event that you're never going to be able to do the same things that you were always, you know, once able to do, but you're going to be able to live a normal fulfilling life. Um, but that new normal that you're going to live with, uh, might might put bounds on what you can do and and that bound like one of those bounds might be i might not be able to fly which i totally there's both the aspect of physically can i fly again and then does the navy want me to fly again and thankfully i had advocates who who stuck up for me on really both of those fronts i had medical advocates who really made sure that i got the care that i needed to to go through rehab and i I certainly have all sorts of lasting issues with all of those injuries but i could none of them really prevented me from being able to, to fly again and um, and then the same thing from from the Navy side. I had enough advocates that said, "Hey, this was this was a yes, this was a preventable accident, right? This shouldn't have happened." And and it was nothing wrong with the jet, nothing, you know. That, that's what it was. But that that saw in me the, the the future potential to continue to go on and have add value to have a successful military career to to get back into it. And and uh, I'm really grateful that, that that they did. And so it was about a year and a half and. And I basically was about the end of my time at the weapons school and I got my update. I, I was able, I got my medical clearance to fly again. And then it was like, all right, cool. You're going to go get current, get flying again. And then you're going to be the training officer at VFA 211, which even that, that the guy that was the XO and then the CO at VFA 211 was someone, he was in my first squadron with me, just a huge advocate of, of mine, a huge mentor throughout my career. And, uh, you know, coming af- out of what happened, I definitely was going to be self-conscious about, getting back and, and, you know, how, how do I think I can instruct other people when 
I'm the dude that just put a jet in the water a year and a half ago. Um, but he, he believed in me. He, you know, he, he had a lot of confidence in me and that I could get back into it and do things. And I'm, I'm forever grateful uh, for that. Isn't that like just the epitome of true leadership, you know, and, yeah. and like just having faith in, in people like, I guess, yes. Okay. So you were in the same squadron together. So he knew you. So maybe it would have been different if he didn't know you. Right. Um, maybe, yeah. maybe, you know, but, yeah. um, but the fact is that he still, you know, had faith in your abilities and he wanted to give you that, tr- that chance and, um, and good on him for that. I think yeah. that's awesome. You know? Yeah. Uh, I, I love that, man. It, it, you know, through this whole, you know, tragic kind of event, unfortunate event, man, there's so many little nuggets of beauty in it, you know, it, yeah. and I, you know, there's nothing beautiful about what happened to you, sure. you know, but I think you know exactly what I mean. Sure. I got to ask you, like, do you find it difficult to talk about it? Like, I know that you said when you were in uniform prior to retirement, you probably would not have talked about it, but and I don't know how much you've talked about it since then. You're very, very gracious to spend your time with me to share this experience, which, um, which I'm uh, truly grateful for. But yeah, how, how do you kind of, how do you feel about talking about this? Because it, it is emotional. It can be. Emotional. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, it's, I probably have less opportunities to talk about it now than I did 15, you know, when it was closer to the time, because it's just, most people just don't know. It's just a part of who I am now. It's, 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 a, it's, it's something that happened. And if, if people find out and they want to talk about it, I'm happy to talk about it. And I think the reason why, um, you know, it obviously was, it was a traumatic event, but it was life-changing in a way that I feel um, I want to tell people. And if someone, if anyone can can glean anything from it that is either motivational or that is inspiring, or give them perspective about life, um, I want to share that. You know, I feel like that's that's I, I've been given the gift of of being able to continue to live a happy and fulfilling life uh, after an event that, I mean, it could have gone again ninety nine times out of a hundred. You know, one of those details goes differently, and I'm not here to talk about that. And and I feel that there's um, I don't know, an obligation, but one that I actually, I, I, I bear that obligation freely and excitedly to talk about it. So really the only reason why I never really talked about it while I was still on active, I talked about it with people. I just didn't really feel comfortable talking about it publicly because there's an element of, I was still on active duty and and I'm talking about, you know, an accident that happened mm-hmm. a lot of times past. I'm no longer in active duty. I, I obviously still, I love the Navy. I love the service. I'm, I'm not going to speak disparagingly uh, of them, but uh, t- in any way. So, but I feel like talking publicly about it. I don't, I don't see anything bad about doing that. And I, and I'm excited to, to talk to others uh, and, and uh, just share, just share my story. Kind of like what you're doing here with go bold, like just trying to tell people stories. And, and I appreciate me, you know, you giving me the opportunity to do that with you. Oh, thank you, man. You know, I, I, I guess, you know, what, when I was asking the question, I was kind of thinking about the fact that, you know, you suffered, you know, some really traumatic injuries and then there's also the mental toll, right? Like, I mean, I've yeah. gone through this and so, you know, people can get affected, you know, for their entire lives. And I'm, I'm sure you, you have been, of course, you know, like physically, mentally. Um, so I was just wondering if, if you find it difficult to recollect these things and go, man, you know, my, my tib fib was like, <laughs> you know, was like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Compound fracture. You know, like, what's it? 
Yeah, you know, that's interesting. I, um, again, I, I feel kind of grateful that I don't have as many memories about, I think if, if I was like conscious for the entire time that I was in the water and really knew where I was, then mentally the trauma that I would have have had maybe would have been very different. Um, and I certainly, yeah, there's been some things I've struggled with over, over the years and, and, um, you don't go through something like that without struggling with, uh, dealing with that trauma. But, um, thank you. know, it's, it's maybe part of even just talking with it and, and talking about it actually helps me work through that too. So, uh, again, I'm happy to do that as well. I think I'm lucky that, uh, through it all, I did not have as much trying. You know, it's just, and it's it's a flip of the coin, I think, as far as whether or not someone goes through something like this, and it's a very um, the things that they remember and the way that it impacts them, and even just like the the, the physiological impact of having that kind of brain trauma um, it is going to impact different people in many different ways. And I feel pretty lucky that you know I kind of managed. There's probably probably a couple a couple screws were loose beforehand, and there's probably quite a few more screws loose now, you know. But but um, I'm able to compensate. Um, awesome. yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. So I, I yeah. gotta ask you this, um, going through an experience like this, how did yeah. it change the way that you lead your life? Yeah. So that's, that's a good question. Um, the thing I normally come back to when I hear that answer is I, I hopefully you can tell, like, I'm a pretty passionate person. I get excited about a lot of things. I'm, 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 uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a pretty passionate person. And sometimes that passion can get turned into, Hey, I'm, I'm overly, I'm upset about this thing or, you know, and, and I've, I've used it as a tool throughout my life. And I've even shared with a lot of people to say like, Hey, if I'm ever super worked up about some opinion or some, like something that I have, that's like a very black and white opinion, which I'm sure if you talk to a lot of fighter pilots, like we all are pretty black and white opinionated personalities. Like there's, there's a mold. Um, sure. <laughs> uh, I, and, um, I've used it as, as a tool to hopefully temper that, to basically say, you know what, this, this thing that I'm, <laughs> whether it's about, you know, something super important about tactics or when I was in the Pentagon, like super, some, you know, something that is very important about like a defense acquisition thing or something as little as like whether use of the Oxford comma is appropriate or not, <laughs> which right. I've gotten in just as passionate arguments <laughs> about that as I have other things, right? Um, awesome. But for all those things, like to go through life with an attitude that like, you know, this is, I'm just lucky to be here. You know, I'm happy to be here and to live, to live life with a sense of gratitude in everything that I do. And that I think I can still live life passionately. Like if I'm passionate away that, that, get, that puts me somewhere where I get, it takes me to a place of being like mad or, you know, so I, I can, I can wash that off pretty easily, you know, or I can get past that pretty easily. And I think that one of the things I keep coming back to is like, you know what, like, this is not, this is not worth me getting that worked up about. Like that person does not believe that the Oxford comma is, is important. I believe it is, but um, <laughs> let's not, like, but life is more, obviously I'm, I'm, I'm joking, but um, I know. yeah. But both kinds of things. Right. So I, yeah, I feel like th there's a renewed sense of just gratitude in, in, in everyday life. That's probably the number one thing. Mm, that's yeah. super cool. Um, yeah, it, it, 
how can you not be grateful, right? Like, I mean, yeah. you're here, you, you've got three beautiful kids, a wife, like, I mean, all of that could have gone sideways, you know, and some people, yeah, right. So, yeah. Um, but I got to ask you about your first trip back into the cockpit because <laughs> like, I mean, you know, you've gone through all this and that whole rehabilitation and what have you, like, yeah. I, mean, I don't want to gloss over that by any means. It was, it, oh. it must've been tough. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it was, and it wasn't again, uh, I think with the, through the lens of gratitude, like it, it was hard. Yes. But like, it was, I had amazing people helping me out. I had support of an entire community of family and friends and parents and, and, and I mean, all of that. So, although it was, it was, it was a trial, it was a time, um, I don't look back at it and think like, oh man, that was super hard. You know, like, so, okay, um, cool. the, the first day, you know, the first time strapping back into an aircraft, um, I was mostly just excited. I think that I, again, I'll, I'll liken it to, I'm kind of grateful that I don't remember a whole lot. It's not like I was riding in a burning aircraft for hours. And then, you know, where like the fear, like it just happened. Like it happened in a split second. It was like the most normal day ever right up into the point I pulled back on the stick. I mean, as crazy as that sounds. So therefore for me, it was a very, like, it was just an isolated thing that happened and my approach to flying was like, okay, like I've, I've learned from that and I can, I can do things differently in the aircraft to not let that happen again. And I do have a new respect for, you know, you can go from everything being perfectly normal in that kind of an aircraft to having, you know, to, to, to something like that happening like that. Um, and you never can lose, lose uh, sight of that when you're flying a tactical aircraft or, I mean, any, any of these kinds of things in military operations. So, um, but, but the first flight, it was, it was kind of benign. I mean, it was, it was, it felt great. You know, it was a great day. I went out. Um, it was, I, I tried to not make a huge deal of it um, because I felt like I just, I was, I was lucky. I was happy, blessed, lucky to be able to get to go fly an aircraft again. And um, yeah. Let's just take off and land. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of what it was. 100%. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So I got, I have to ask you, was it an alpha or was <laughs> or was it a it was not. Yeah. I have not flown. The Navy decided it was not in the best interest of anyone to, to put me back in a Hornet. So I flew Super Hornets exclusively for the rest of my career. There wasn't really an opportunity, but um sure. I, I was I was okay with that. Yeah, uh, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, as we close out this, this chat first, uh, you know, I, 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 again, I want to thank you for, for taking the time to share it. It's uh it's an amazing story. I'm so glad that you're, you're doing well. Um, but I can't help but ask you your thoughts about, and I think I know what it's going to be like, I mean, you know, who wouldn't, who wouldn't, um, who wouldn't think positively about it, but uh, what if you had auto GCAS? in your aircraft, right? <laughs> and and I have to yeah. give a shout out to a friend of mine. Uh, he's a Royal Canadian Air Force fighter pilot, uh, test pilot, worked with Lockheed Martin, worked with BAE Systems, worked with a number of different folks, um, Billy Flynn. And Billy Flynn yeah. was one of the test pilots that had worked on auto GCAS hmm. uh, for the F-16. And uh, now that auto GCAS has found its way into other platforms, F-35. Um, and I think, I think it's going to go to the F-18 community, I think. So my understanding, the, the legacy Hornet community has been working on it. So the, the A through D. Um, and, and obviously the Navy's not flying that anymore. The Marines still are. And there's other international 
uh, Canada, I think still is and other international partners. Right. It's, it's, um, uh, I wish it, you know, the super one, it has different software. Like there are, there are reasons why it's not currently being implemented. There's a pretty big bill associated with it. It would take a decent amount of time. There's a lot of bills to pay. It kind of bums me out. I, I wish the Super Hornet were getting it. Now, to be fair, the likelihood of a G-Lock in a Super Hornet is probably less. And I think the data would support that, that, hey, there are more G-Locks that you see in you know, F-16 as an IG aircraft and uh, an F a, a Legacy Hornet, F-15, certainly, and, and uh, even F-35. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm pretty convinced that, like, at the, I mean, essentially the way it works, for those who don't know, it just it, it automates the recovery as soon as that that tone starts going off, basically telling you, "Hey, dude, you're going to hit the ground." And in the way it's currently implemented, it's just a it's a it's a voice. It says, "Pull up, pull up," and it mm -hmm. gives you a couple seconds of that, and then you hit the ground. Um, you know, it, it, I don't know if in my parameters, if that was it would have already started the recovery and it would have recovered the aircraft. I think it probably would have. I know some of the saves that the F-16 community has had have been similar kind of you know G-lock incidents in the f-16 i mean the f-18 sadly i mean the super hornet th there have been a couple we call c-fit controlled flight and terrain for various reasons there's other reasons that you can accidentally fly into the ground or into the water than just a g-lock and mm -hmm. auto gcast does a pretty good job of that you know some of the f-16 saves have been things like uh dudes in a in a strafe like in a dive uh at night getting disoriented and just losing sight of the fact that they are screaming at the ground trying to strafe something and the auto G cast steps in and it recovers you. There's been at least one, I think more than one saves in the F-16 community. There's been a lot of really close calls in the super Hornet and Hornet community, I think with those kinds of things. So I, yeah, I, I mean, every feature platform is going to have it. It's the, the hard thing is, is, is getting it over the hill from a platform integration standpoint. And I agree that the, it's, it's saved lots of lives in the F-16 community. And it took a lot of time to get buy-in from that community as well, too, because I think there was a fear that it would prevent them from doing low-altitude tactical things. And all of a sudden, they're, you know, they're turning the controls over to HAL, and the robot's going to step in and, and fly the aircraft. But I think that the community adoption has been really good. Um, and I hope, you know, I hope it's going to make its way into the Hornet soon, and, and it would be great if we get it into the Super Hornet as well. Yeah. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. I totally agree. I think it's one yeah. of those. Uh, I know uh, I interviewed Billy and he said it's one of the, if not the, the program that he's the most proudest of. Awesome. And yeah. 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 I mean, he's sa saved, unquestionably saved, you know, several people's lives uh, as well as those aircraft. I mean, that's, that's awesome. Exactly. Yeah. No, Super totally. Cool. Um, yeah. So as we close out, Shaka, I guess I just got to ask you, yeah, you know, for, for the pilots that are listening out there, uh, you know, or, or it doesn't even have to be pilots, whoever's listening, you know, if you were to just give a, a word of advice, you know, from the experience that you've oh, had. Oh, wow. That's a tough one. Um, even, what word of advice? What, yeah. Even what would you say to your kids? You know, like I, I it, it, have you, do your kids ask about so, this? You know, my my kids my kids have all heard this story in some capacity, but I bet you that when they listen to this, it's there's going to be a lot of new stuff. There's going to be a lot of stuff that they probably, I, you know, that I probably have told them in one one way or another. Sure. I, here, so here's here's be my advice. Um, enjoy in and this I think applies to the the the, the pilot community, and it, but it could also apply in life enjoy the moment where you are like take advantage of the moment that you're in 
while also thinking about and, and just growing towards some other future. Right. And I, what I would say to that is like when I was early in my career, I don't know if I did either of those things very well. You know, like I don't think I had a full appreciation for the fact that like I was a J.O., young Mary J.O., getting to live in Japan, um, like just super awesome experiences. I don't I mean, maybe I enjoy I, I don't know, um, but it was awesome, you know. But I also don't know if I was doing things that were actually driving me towards growing into something that would be also wonderful. Like, I don't think when I was earlier in my career, I really valued having mentors, even though I know I mentioned one earlier, but I didn't really, I didn't, I didn't value higher, you know, pursuing additional education or broadening my horizons in things or even valuing like lessons in leadership. It was probably not until much later in my career that I started to see those things. So I think that there's, um, there's an element of, you know, have gratitude and enjoy what you're, whatever, whatever position you're in right now, enjoy that uh, because you only get that moment for, for one time. Uh, but at the same time, be looking on the horizon for what new era, like wh where do you see yourself down the road? Um, and I think that later in my career, as I, as I was, as I knew I was going to retire, I, I coming out of my job in the Pentagon, I think I, I was doing a better job of doing that, of trying to make the most and, 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 be in the moment and be a, make as much of an impact where I was, but then also really look and, and think about where could I go and, and do awesome, impactful things afterwards. And um, I don't know. I don't know if that's uh, you put me on the spot a little bit there. So I don't know if that makes any sense or not, but that's it what, that's the first thing that came to mind. It, it makes <laughs> yeah. perfect sense. And I think it's great cool. advice. Cool. Live in the moment and yeah, try, try to plan ahead. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, yeah. Try I to grow a growth I, mindset. I love it. And I hope, I hope your kids take that to heart too, whenever they hear this, yeah. because I, I think it would, it, it put them in good stead for sure. Cool. For sure. Awesome. Kevin Klon, um, commander, uh, U.S. Navy retired. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me on Go Bold. It's, uh, it's been an absolute pleasure. And I tell you what, I just want to reiterate how, how grateful I am for you to share this story because like I said, my palms were climbing through it and uh, <laughs> and you lived it, but I'm so glad everything turned out well. And and also, I think, you know, you've said it a number of times in this chat, but I will say it um, thanks to all of the people that kind of came to your rescue Yeah, uh, because yeah. They're, they also deserve as much credit for sure. Absolutely. Absolutely. No, thank you. Thank you, Jody. Thanks for, thanks for doing what you do for telling, uh, you know, helping tell people stories. And I'm just so appreciative to, to get to be a part of that. So thanks. You are the man. And I, 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 I'm looking forward to our next opportunity because absolutely there's some stuff from your Pentagon days that, that we got to talk about. Sure. Would love to. Excellent. That'd be awesome. Excellent. Thank you very much. All right. That see my friends, let's see you. Take care of yourself. That my friends was Kevin Klon, call sign Shaka a former United States Navy fighter pilot uh, and a very decent human being. Thanks very much, everybody, for listening to this episode of Go Bold, and we hope you have a wonderful day. Take care. The views and opinions expressed in this presentation are solely those of the participants. This podcast is copyright and all rights are reserved. No portion may be reproduced or used in any manner without the express written permission of the publisher who can be reached at goboldthepodcast at gmail.com. The music on this podcast is Parasail by Silent Partner. <laughs>